Jesus replied, Verily, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Verily, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. So good to be back. Thank you so much, first and foremost, for your, your prayers and your support as I was in Jerusalem. Um, it was definitely an amazing experience to be uh, engrossed in that culture and to really have a chance to, to learn the language more or less in the places that it developed. Um, the number one question that I've received since I've been back is, so are you fluent yet? <laughs> and while I appreciate um, the confidence in my ability to retain language information, no, I'm not fluent yet, but I am looking forward to uh, continuing to learn the language and continuing to, to gain a mastery over it, because there's something very, very uh, special about reading God's Word uh, in its original language. So it's been a, a very, very big blessing, and I thank you again for, for your support. Um, I knew that I would miss this church a lot as I left, but I had no idea how much. I think of all the things that I missed while I was gone, this, this has to be number one. So I thank you for giving me a place that I can call home and for welcoming me back here this morning. Um, it definitely got a little rocky towards the end. I was keeping in touch with a few of you about my, my flight situation. My original flight was canceled 36 hours before it was scheduled to depart. Um, so after an all-nighter on orbits and hot wire, and praise God for that technology, I was able to find a flight and get back home. So it's, it's great to be back um, in the safety of America, and it's amazing how much uh, we can easily take for granted as far as, as our safety is concerned. Um, but it's definitely uh, a great blessing to be back. Um, and as your youth pastor, I feel like it's at least my partial responsibility to keep you up to date with the uh, recent trends in social media and things like that. Uh, so this morning, I'm going to introduce you to uh, what they call a meme. I introduced you to memes last time I spoke. Basically, it's uh, a way of... It's, I guess they're on Instagram. If you have a Facebook, you're familiar with these. They're funny pictures, and they kind of condense them, and they, they put captions on the picture. And there's a specific category of meme entitled, You're Doing It Wrong. And it fit in perfectly with my sermon today, so we'll start by looking at a couple of examples. And you'll get the gist of these very quickly. Essentially, they're funny photos that are taken, and then there are people who place this caption, You're Doing It Wrong, as a way of uh, <laughs> jokingly correcting an action that's being done. The first one is this one. It's called Soccer, You're Doing It Wrong. <laughs> the next one is Nature Photography. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> this one is a good one for all of you who drink caffeine. Energy drinks. You're doing it wrong. It's <laughs> a good one. Boating. <laughs> this is my personal favorite, probably the one that w most of us can relate to. Facebook. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. And then for all of us who have struggled through a high school or college math class, rule of math. If it seems easy, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so all of us in our lives have come to these places 
whether it be professionally in a career or uh, maybe in a relationship or something that's going on on a personal level, where we wake up and have these epiphanies or moments where we recognize that we're doing something wrong. And I think one of the, the most profound places to have one of these experience, uh, experiences is in our religious walk. Uh, sometimes there are moments where we have a yearning to go deeper with God, as the song that we just sang uh, pronounces. There are times where we, we recognize um, how inadequate we, inadequate we are and how fortunate we are to have a God that reaches down after us. And we have these moments that we're inspired to attempt to go deeper with God. And there's a gentleman by the name of Nicodemus, uh, and whom we'll be spending the majority of today's sermon talking about, who had one of these moments. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, or a, a religious leader uh, in Jerusalem, which means that essentially he, he wasn't really allowed to be having conversations with Jesus. You see, his colleagues had kind of put Jesus and him at odds, so he comes to Jesus by night. And the majority of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this story. But as I was reading this over, I found so many parallels with, with the way Nicodemus approaches Jesus and the common things that you and I do wrong as far as our relationship or our conversion or, or our per- perception of Jesus and salvation. We can relate so much to Nicodemus. So the title of today's sermon is called The Wrong Way to Do the Right Thing. And it's talking about the, the ways that we can often go wrong uh, in our pursuit of Jesus, with Nicodemus as an example. And no, we won't point fingers and make fun as the memes do, but we'll look to see what we can learn from him in order for us to, to go deeper with Jesus. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3, that's where the majority of our scripture comes from this morning. And we'll start right in on verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. So right off the bat, we see that Nicodemus is is making a couple of of minor mistakes in, in his pursuit of Jesus. So we'll start by looking in at them individually and see if you and I can relate to any of them. The first thing that Nicodemus does incorrectly is that he comes to Jesus at night. He is convinced that there is something very distinct about Jesus, but as we had alluded to before, he is afraid of what people will think. His co-workers have made it clear that they don't like Jesus, and because he associates himself with them, He isn't allowed to have this communion with Jesus, so he comes at night. Earlier in the day, in John chapter 2, we hear the story of Jesus bombarding through the temple. You're all familiar with the story where where Jesus walks into God's house and he sees people, he witnesses them buying and selling goods and bartering, and he sees these Pharisees ripping people off at the expense of of their desire to have this religious experience. And Jesus is sickened by the entire thing. So he storms through the temple, and with the authority that could only be granted by God, he shoves the tables out of the way and, and, and bashes the money changers and condemns them and says, basically, how dare you do this in my father's house? 
So the Pharisees, fresh off of this experience, have this very strong contempt for Jesus. But yet Nicodemus is one of them, and he's able to, to separate himself just far enough to recognize that there is something significant about Jesus. But he is not able to fully pursue Jesus because of his relationship with these people. And this got me thinking, what are the areas in my personal life or in our life as, as members of, of a congregation or members of, of the children of God, where are you and I coming to Jesus at night? It's easy for us to get comfortable as Christians and to, to reduce being a Christian to a four-hour time slot on Sabbath morning. And, and as I was telling the youth this morning, it's often our tendency to, to separate our lives, to, to decompartmentalize our lives, and to have a, a church self, a work self, for me, a school self, or a social self. And there are so many times where we refuse to let Jesus into certain avenues of our lives because we're afraid of what those people that we associate with will think. But when we do that, we're cheating two people. We're cheating ourselves, first of all, because we're not allowing Jesus to penetrate all of our lives and experience the positive change that comes of it. But we're also cheating the people that we associate with. There are many people in our lives outside of church, I would guess, that don't have the luxury of having as much knowledge of Jesus as we do here as Seventh-day Adventist Christians in this church. And by keeping what we know to be true of our Savior from them, we're doing them a huge, uh, we're not doing them correctly. Because Jesus has made a difference in our lives, and to, to, to keep that from others is wrong. And it's something that, that Nicodemus did, and something that I think is our tendency to do because we're afraid of what the people that we associate with will think. One of the things that's interesting about this kind of error in our relationship with Jesus is that I think it's something, at least with Nicodemus, his relationship with Jesus or his pursuit of Jesus was based upon curiosity and not confidence. See, when you're curious about something, you pursue it in areas that are comfortable. You pursue it in areas by yourself because you want to know more about it. Yet, when you're confident about something, you proclaim it. Think about someone that you, that you love or cherish, perhaps a spouse or a member of your family. When you are passionate about someone and when you have confidence in someone, you want the world to know about it. That's why people wear wedding bands. That's why people will post their relationship status on Facebook. If you see anybody who is afraid to share their partner with somebody else, it means nine times out of ten that they aren't confident in that relationship. And yet you and I do this with Jesus perhaps on a daily basis because we're afraid of people seeing what that relationship looks like. The next thing Nicodemus uh, arguably does wrong is that he has an agenda with Jesus. In verse 2 he says, We know that you come from God. Almost as if to say, what can you do for me? Nicodemus' lack of confidence in Jesus makes him approach Jesus with his own ideas, with his own plans. Maybe his agenda is that he wants to, to use Jesus' miracles to endorse the teaching of the Pharisees. Maybe he wants to get the glory for becoming a bridge between these two opposite parties and, and, and bringing them together. 
And I want you to think of a person that you trust most in your life. When you, someone that you, when you have a problem, you can go to them and give them your problems without a solution, expecting them to make a way, to make an intervention, to, to bring a solution. And my question is, why aren't we doing that with Jesus? So many times we look at our own personal prayer lives and our personal prayer lives, and I can certainly relate to this. When I am honest with myself about what I'm praying for, when I'm praying, oftentimes we bring a checklist to God. You see, we look at what we see to be problems in our lives, and, and we, we work it out apart from Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, now do this and this and this. And instead of focusing on his will in certain situations, we try to work things out ourselves and make Jesus a, a genie in a bottle to give us the solutions that we find best for our lives. Totally forgetting that Jesus is all-powerful, all-knowing, knowing ourselves and our needs better than even we do. So instead of coming to him like Nicodemus did with an agenda, why don't we come to him with open hearts, allowing him to work in our lives in ways that he sees fit. The last thing that we notice here is that Nicodemus is focusing on the signs instead of focusing on the Savior. In verse 2, he also says, we know that you are something special because we have seen the signs that you have performed. We've seen the signs that you do. And the Gospel of John is often called the signs source. And the reason for that is that uh, John, the author, often attributes anytime Jesus does a miracle, he uses that as a sign to point to Jesus as something greater. Jesus healed the blind man, so therefore he is Savior. He is Redeemer. He is the Son of God. But many times in John, there are people who experience this side of Jesus, and they get so caught up in the acts that he's doing that they forget to take it a step further and look at what the sign is pointing to. They, they refuse to take a step back and see who this Jesus is because they're so wrapped up in the things that he's doing. I had a professor um, my sophomore year who put it this way. Imagine you and your family are, are taking a trip to the Grand Canyon. And after five hours of driving, you're, you're getting very close and you see a sign up ahead that says Grand Canyon, five miles up ahead. And you pull the car over, you're very excited, you gather your kids and you, you take family photos around this sign. And when you're done, you get back in the car and go home. Missing the entire experience. And it sounds foolhardy, but it's often what you and I do with God, with Jesus. We often get so entangled in the blessings that he has given us, in the, the wealth or the family or the, the occupations, the blessings that Jesus has given us in order for us to recognize who he is and give him glory. Instead, we take those very same blessings and turn them into distractions that turn us away from Jesus. We focus on the signs instead of focusing on the Savior. So finally, Jesus uh, responds to Nicodemus. Seeing through his agenda, Jesus answered him and says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Jesus bypasses all the small talk of Nicodemus. He, he looks past the surface and 
ignores the words of Nicodemus and goes straight to penetrating his heart. He sees the underlying, the underlying intentions behind Nicodemus' words and speaks directly to them, saying, if you want to see me, if you want to see the kingdom, if you want to see God's plan unveil in your life, you must be born again. And as Christians, we grow up hearing this language, and it, it's almost become a, a Christian cliche to hear this born-again language. But to Nicodemus, imagine hearing this profound statement for the first time. Nicodemus takes him very literally. In verse 4, he says, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of spirit is spirit. Nicodemus is making the mistake of trying to understand spiritual things with non-spiritual eyes. And many times you and I do the same things. We don't put the time and effort that a relationship with God calls for. We, we, we aren't praying, we aren't reading our word, but yet we try to, to have this, this relationship with God. And in the meantime, we're viewing him through a very skewed perception. We're looking at God through our own agenda-ridden eyeglasses, whether they be of, of prosperity or selfishness. We're reducing God to a very limited scope, a very limited picture, and are refusing to see the magnitude of who He really is in our lives. We're not asking for His Holy Spirit to penetrate into our lives, and therefore we're not seeing the bigger picture of who God truly wants to be for each and every one of us. Jesus continues and says, Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus is reminding Nicodemus that positions do not guarantee understanding. Nicodemus, his entire life had been enthralled in this training to become a Pharisee, a leader of this religious sect in Israel, and yet he didn't understand these things about God. And so many times you and I as lifelong Adventists, or perhaps Christians for, for years and years and years take for granted the things that we have come to know and we become complacent in the information that we have received and forget that our God is bigger. We forget to seek him on a daily basis to, to discover new things about our Savior that he is willing to open for us, instead becoming locked down in our tiny, limited perceptions. Jesus says, if I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him 
may have eternal life. Jesus points to a peculiar story in the Old Testament and one that Nicodemus is very familiar with. It's a story that we find today in in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. And for those of you who are familiar with this story, essentially Jesus alludes to it. It's it's when the Israelites are are walking through the wilderness and they have become so self-centered and so sinful that God sends a reminder in the form of snakes. And the Israelites are, are getting bitten by snakes because of their transgressions, because of their sinfulness. And it's getting to the point where it's so bad that many of the Israelites are, are, are threatened with death because their bodies are deteriorating, the venom in the snakes is spreading through their bloodstream, and they're short of breath on the verge of death. And so Moses, who is a representative of the people of Israel, is talking with God. And this is, uh, times like these I'm assured that that God has a a sense of humor because God tells Moses, he says, okay, we'll provide a solution for the children of Israel, but it's it's not going to be one that, (laughs) that they like. I want you to construct a bronze serpent, a bronze snake, essentially a, a bronze version of what has just threatened them with death, and lift it up onto a pole. And whoever lays eyes upon this snake will be healed, and whoever refuses to will perish. And there are many in Israel who, whether for lack of faith or for pride, uh, they, they hear about this remedy, and they refuse to look up, and they perish. Yet there are others who humble themselves and they decide out of desperation or, or belief to, to look up at the snake and they are healed. And Jesus relates himself to this snake in the wilderness, saying that for men to know God, he must be lifted up. And this is very beautiful imagery that Jesus is bringing forward. Because essentially, he is saying, as it says in 1 Corinthians, Jesus became sin. He knew no sin, but he became sin that we might become his righteousness. Jesus took the form of the very thing that has been slaying us for thousands upon thousands of years as a human race. Jesus took the form of the very thing that has caused death in us since the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Jesus took the form of flesh coming down from the very throne of God conquering sin, conquering death, in order that we might have the chance to be elevated to the very same place that he left from initially. Jesus became the bronze snake in the wilderness for each and every single one of us. And in Israel, the people were reluctant to recognize his identity because they weren't what, he wasn't what they were expecting. Jesus was more of what they had seen. Jesus was a man. Jesus was even a member of the lower class society. And there were people just like the people in Israel who, because of their pride and selfishness, refused to see Jesus for what he was as their Redeemer. They were so consumed and so prideful in their own ways and their own sickly habits that had shown physically in the form of a snake, but that they did not want to look upon Jesus as the author of salvation. Jesus took the form of you and I, the thing that had represented for us so long a limited life, a life that would inevitably end in death, so that we might become 
his righteousness. The last thing that Nicodemus arguably does wrong in this passage is that he tries to be in charge of his own conversion. He's constantly asking questions that make it very evident that he wants to be in control. And it's a very uh, legalistic mindset that was prominent within the Pharisees that essentially you have to earn your own salvation. You have to be good enough with God. You have to do A, B, and C in order to, to be recognized by God as somebody that is worthy to be saved. So he sees Jesus, and Jesus looks different to him, and he comes to him and says, Jesus, what must I do to understand you? What must I do to be saved? And so when Jesus says, you must be born again, again Nicodemus says, okay, how do I initiate that process? Do I literally climb back into my mother's womb? And every, every single time Jesus responds, he takes Nicodemus further and further down a road that inevitably leads in selflessness. Because that's the road of Christianity. All other religions tell us that we have to be good enough. We have to, to do certain things in order to find acceptance with God. We have to do certain things to elevate ourselves to God. But the beautiful and profound thing about the Christian faith is that we believe that we serve a God that is way out of our reach. And because of that, God makes himself accessible and comes down to us to raise us back up to where he is. That is a story of Christianity, and that is a story that Nicodemus was reluctant to come to terms with. And you and I face this dilemma on a daily basis, whether it's because we have our agenda with Jesus, whether it's because we're afraid of what people will think of us, whether it's because we are, are refusing to look at the spiritual, radical aspect of faith and the radical aspect of living a life with Jesus. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus follows up this dialogue with probably the most well-known verse in Scripture. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For the control freaks like Nicodemus and like many of us in here, this comes as a shock that Jesus has our salvation worked out for us. And it may come as an even greater shock that Jesus wants to have a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship. And perhaps as the biggest surprise that Jesus is ready to start that relationship with you today. He is ready, as he offered to Nicodemus, to, to give you that rebirth, that inexplicable event where you stop viewing things through the selfish lenses that this world has to offer, and you start allowing yourself or allowing God to show you his perspective. God is, or Jesus is, is working to show himself to us in such a way that we would have no choice but to look up and surrender. We'd have no choice but to understand that Jesus has done all the work for us in our conversion, in our relationship, in our salvation. And all we have to do is accept his invitation to be born again.